The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. When I originally discovered yoga, people confused it with yogurt, and both were weird. Now, I read every book about yoga that was then in the Kansas City, Missouri Public Library. That would have been all three uh, books on yoga that were in the Kansas City, Missouri Public Library. And I was intrigued as a teenager with a long-running weight problem and a passionate interest in the meaning of life that this was both exercise and spiritual practice. And I learned that serious yogis were vegetarians with a deep commitment to ahimsa, nonviolence, and reverence for life. That was nearly 49 years ago. And today, I can guarantee at least two blissfully happy hours in the week when I teach yoga on Tuesday and Thursday morning here in my condo building in New York City. That's my yoga story. Maybe you have one too. And after today's program, maybe you'll start to have one. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan Show. You can find more out about what I do at MainStreetVegan.net. Do get over there and look at this week's blog. It is a beautiful, beautiful post from Michelle Schaefer. She's a Main Street uh, Vegan Certified Vegan Lifestyle Coach and also an educator in Indiana. And she's written the most intriguing piece, lots of little stories about animals and really who they are. So I think you're really, really going to like that one. And you are really, really, really going to be excited that after the break, Dr. Will Tuttle will be joining us. Dr. Will Tuttle of the World Peace Diet, and he's just a world peace person. And he is going to be joining us because he has a role to play in the work of our first guest that you'll be meeting in just about a minute here. And she is Anna Ferguson. Anna is the author of a brand new book called World Peace Yoga, Yoga for People Who Breathe. 
and she was inspired by Dr. Tuttle's work. But she has been doing a lot of stuff on her own as well. Anna is the co-founder of World Peace Yoga Studio uh, and Heart Montessori, a vegan Montessori school where empathy and compassion are taught as part of core academics. And she's also at the helm of the Jubilee Animal Sanctuary, providing a glimpse of what a peaceful world looks like. Welcome, Anna Ferguson. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am so excited to be here. We've met. I know you've also uh, sponsored VegFest. You've just done a whole lot of things for a whole lot of years. With yoga and veganism seeming to be at the center, how do those two juxtapose in your life? Well, for myself, they're ultimately one and the same. And that's kind of the, to a large degree, the, 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 sub, the sub-premise of my book that yoga and veganism are one and the same, that uh, most people think of yoga as the postures and putting your leg behind your head. But in reality, anyone that is practicing being conscious and aware of their daily actions is practicing yoga. And so uh, being a vegan is being conscious and aware of your actions. So uh, a vegan lifestyle goes hand in hand with a yoga practice and a yoga practice goes hand in hand with a vegan lifestyle. That is beautiful, as is your book. It's a great big, colorful, illustrated, lots and lots of pictures, certainly of of the yoga postures. If anybody is unsure about one, you really take people through. So this has to be a long time labor of love. What caused you to want to add author to your many credentials? (laughs) Well, I was really inspired to write a book to bring together the multifaceted aspects of yoga and to create something that was holistic, fun, colorful, and also just a very practical tool. Um, Sometimes yoga can be very airy-fairy, and so I just wanted to create something that was lighthearted and fun, but also just a practical tool for living yoga on and off the mat. And um, there are some heavy uh, concepts introduced in the book, and uh, especially when I talk about empathy and compassion and as it relates to each other and fellow beings. And so the, the art is there to bring some of the lightness to the heavy content and also to inspire people's, uh, in, inspire people's spiritual practice, to inspire people's yoga practice through color and through art. Well, you've done a beautiful, beautiful job. So let's start with a little bit of your personal history, Anna. What were you doing before you were a yogi and a vegan? What was I doing before a yogi and a vegan? I was in, uh, well, gosh, I was in college at the University of Cincinnati, just figuring out what I was going to do with my life and not super clear. And actually a college roommate started playing around with a vegetarian diet. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I had the... um, the usual questioning that people do when someone close to them starts to have a lifestyle change to some degree. And 
so I was questioning her motives and questioning what she was doing. And even with all that questioning, um, I just noticed that she seemed to be, uh, her skin seemed to glow. She seemed to be happier. She seemed to walk a little bit uh, lighter. And I thought, that's really interesting. I think I might like to explore this. And um, so I started explore, experimenting with vegetarianism. And uh, and probably two or three weeks after that, uh, an, another friend took me to, invited me to a yoga class after I had uh, tried out this yoga video in my parents' basement with my sister when she was uh, when she was in town. And so I kind of got introduced to both vegetarianism and yoga almost at the same time, although they weren't necessarily connected. And the classes, the yoga classes that I took certainly were not addressing vegetarianism or veganism or anything like that until I actually uh, met and took a class with Doug Swenson, who's a very longtime yogi and vegan. And he was the first yoga teacher I ever had that even uh, brought in this idea that you mentioned of ahimsa and nonviolence and how it connects to our food choices and how it connects to our yoga practice. So, um, but yeah, <laughs> that's a little bit of a little bit of background. <laughs> and that is really interesting because when you really read yoga philosophy, I understand that that it comes from India, and and so the dietary suggestions tend to be lacto vegetarian because India and milk have long been tied. I, that's changing a little bit now. I, I think. I hope. Um, and yet, when I was first learning about yoga, everybody knew you were supposed to be vegetarian. And now you can go to yoga studios, you can go to yoga classes that are all over everywhere, and you just don't hear it. What happened? Why did it go to sleep? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I think I read recently that it's an estimated 36 million people that are practicing yoga in the United States right now. So yoga has definitely boomed, but what I think has really boomed is the, the asana, the exercise, the posture uh, part of the practice, and the, which is a beautiful part of the yoga practice. And, uh, and ultimately I think that that became so popular and people love how they feel when they practice the poses and they love that deep relaxation, but the other stuff just kind of got uh, pushed to the side or not even really um, an integral part of the practice when it's a huge part. I mean, some, some, uh, some teachers will say that uh, you should practice a vegetarian ahimsic lifestyle before you even practice uh, the poses that that is like a step before even getting on your mat. Um, but yes, it's just become, uh, it's become, uh, we've been come saturated with the exercise component and the philosophy component has, um, been somewhat left behind. So, it, mm. and I think people are also intimidated to, even if they do practice it themselves, they're a little bit intimidated, like they're going to lose students and they don't want, 
they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to get anyone upset or things like that. So it's just become less and less talked about. Well, I could certainly understand that. And it is interesting. And we'll probably talk more about this with Dr. Tuttle. Talking about being vegan does upset people. <laughs> and I think mm-hmm. it's because there's something inside a lot of people that they really think we're right. Otherwise, they wouldn't be upset. I mean, if somebody said to me, I want to paint my whole house with polka dots, I would say, enjoy that. I don't want to do it, but I wouldn't be mad about it. <laughs> and so I think there might be something in there. So how about looking at it from the opposite um, direction, Anna? How about vegans and how would they benefit from a, a spiritual practice and practicing yoga? Well, I think that practicing yoga ultimately makes for a more peaceful and joyful vegan. And and a vegan that's able to have compassion for everyone, humans included. When, uh, when we're angry, we have a tendency to point fingers. We may even feel hate toward people. And I think this just is a quick way to burn out and just deeper angst and deeper frustration. And when we practice conscious breathing, when we practice meditation, when we even practice going through the different postures, it gives us the strength to pause before saying or doing something out of frustration or anger and to use that pause to then be able to respond to whatever the circumstance of life, circumstances of life are coming up in a more calm way. And so I feel that that just will allow for as vegans for us to have a deeper connection with others and to really work to see things from the point of view of others, even if we don't agree with them, to really work to be in their shoes and to empathize with them so that we can have a response that comes from a place of empathy and compassion rather than from anger or frustration. And yoga really provides the tools for for having that kind of response. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. It's it's such a conundrum because when someone is a committed ethical vegan, particularly if someone has seen what goes on in, in factory farms, in slaughterhouses, um, whether they've seen that in, in videos or in person, and, and their heart so goes out to these innocent beings, and then we're saying, but we have to be kind and respectful and understanding and patient with the people who are perpetrating this this hideous suffering. That's one of those things, and I'm interested in how this comes across to you, Anna. For me, it's one of those things that is never going to be this lovely, smooth fit. It's just that, yes, I know what happens to animals is hideous and should not be happening, and yet I also know that I need to be just like talking about understanding, empathetic, and open to the people who are perpetrating it. How, how do you juxtapose that? How do you get that to make sense in your mind? Uh, well, I would say for one, I was once one of those people um, that was uh, violent toward other beings and causing trauma to other beings. And um, most people with, I mean, there's the exception of few that are raised vegan, but most people 
that are vegan today, I think were not vegan their whole life. And so for me to really, uh, I really work to see myself and others and see people really from their most authentic way of being. And I think that deep, deep down, we all have those same, um, those same qualities that we, we really uh, want people to be kind, to be loving, to, uh, to really take time to connect with us. And so for me, I just really work to uh, put myself in, in their shoes and to remember what it was like when I was still uh, learning and to just connect human to human and find something in common, something similar that we can share uh, and, and go from there. So an actual conversation can be had versus uh, me getting angry or telling someone they should or should not do something, but really just coming from a place where where can we connect? Where are we the same? And, and, and then go from there and see where the, see where the conversation might, might take us. Mm, Spoken as a true yogi. Now, I think it's pretty obvious that yoga philosophy can lead to some of this empathy and, and compassion that you're talking about, but you actually say that there are certain postures, there are certain of the physical yogic asanas that can also help in, in developing empathy and compassion. What are those? Well, I think that's the interesting thing about the about the asana practice, about the practice of all these poses and the fact that it's gotten so hugely po- uh, popular. Uh, there's, of course, the 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 one benefit is that you're intentionally putting yourself in a challenging position. You're putting yourself in the position of a cat or a dog, and you're uh, just working through breathing through that challenging position you're in so that ultimately you're putting introducing stress to your body in a healthy way and really working to breathe through it so that you can handle stress off the mat. But almost all of the postures are related to uh, different elements, shapes, aspects of nature, animals. There's cobra pose. There's cat pose. There's cow pose. There's all these different poses that relate to animals. And the way I see the asana practice is that essentially – when we practice these poses, we're putting ourselves in someone else's shoes, someone else's claws or hooves or wings or paws or fins, and doing that in an effort to more deeply empathize and understand our really our sameness with others. So I really feel that all of the postures are a way to connect with a deeper place of empathy and compassion because every pose that you take is really just putting yourself in someone else's shoes, putting yourself in the shoes of a dog, putting yourself in the shoes of a cat, putting yourself in the shoes of a cow or a tree and finding a place of connection with that other. Uh, So that's really the philosophy side of this physical practice is that it really is a practice of empathy and compassion. 
That is the most beautiful explanation I've ever heard. And in my many, many years of yoga, I have never heard that before. So thank you, Anna. That That is revolutionary and beautiful, as is the cover of your book, World Peace Yoga. Now, you always think that a, a beautifully illustrated yoga book, you know, maybe it's going to have somebody doing asanas, maybe it'll show chakras or something. This cover is this beautiful wreath around an image of of someone doing yoga and the globe, but it shows all the animals. So we've got the the cow and and the turkey and and the pig and the, the horse. And I mean, it's just like, yeah, and this really is world peace. You know, when you think of the Isaiah prophecy in the Bible, where he's talking about true peace, where, where there's no hurt and there's no destruction of any being. So you're just showing us how yoga can bring that about. So just tell us, you know, we always want to know with guests, you know, like we want to know what they eat. We want to, you know, how they get along if their spouse isn't vegan or whatever. So in your case, I think we're really wanting to know what does your personal yoga practice look like? What does your morning look like in particular? Okay. Well, I will say that my personal practice is always changing because I have a four-year-old child, and once we get a routine down, that routine changes. Um, but we're, I, I, I'm in a – now that he's in school, yes, the vegan Montessori school, which we're super stoked about um, – but now that he's in school, uh, I'm able to get more of a solid routine, but it still changed to some degree. But um, the, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is really simple. I just take, I drink a large glass of water. And, and then I make a cup of tea before Noah goes to school. And, and, I, and I'll say when I have this cup of tea, I do not uh, check my phone. I do not check my email. There was a time where I was doing that, and now it's become part of my yoga practice, essentially, to when I wake up in the morning, just do one thing at a time and really focus on that. So I have a cup of tea, and that's the only thing I do. I don't check my phone while I'm having a cup of tea. I I don't try to multitask while I'm having that cup of tea. And it really just makes for a wonderful morning. And, um, and then after that, usually I do, after I take Noah to school, um, I usually do 30 to 45 minutes of movement, whether it's the yoga poses or another form of exercise. And that is usually followed by five or 10 minutes of meditation and, um, and, at the end of the day, I like to do five or 10 minutes of just um, resting on my back and putting my legs up, <laughs> legs up the wall pose. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, a, a vegan lifestyle is just a huge part of, um, of a yoga practice for me. So that's just like a given, goes without saying. But well, that's, that's little, beautiful and yeah. doable. That is doable for other people with four-year-olds and multiple jobs and all the things that people have. So thank you for showing us that being a yogi doesn't mean you have to have 12 hours a day to devote to it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, I really work to, especially in my books, is make it really practical for people, even if it means you've only got one minute 
if you if you have such a busy life that all you do is wake up in the morning and sit up for one minute and sit in silence, that's the beginning of a meditation practice, and everyone has one minute. So that can be the start of something. Beautiful. So is that the one simple thing listeners might start doing to begin or deepen their spiritual self-care or yoga practice? Or do you have another gem for us? I think that, I think that uh, having one thing in the morning where you just do that one thing and don't do anything else, and it's really, um, it's, it's easier said than done, like to, to have a cup of tea and to not go and reach for your phone, to sit up and out of bed and just be silent and, uh, and focus on your breath. Um, I, I'm, really, I'm really big on just when you first wake up in the morning, just focus on doing one simple thing and just let your mind completely focus on that. So love it. So um, in our last couple of minutes here, and I don't know if you're going to be staying on in the second half when Will joins us, it would be lovely if you're able to do that. But this vegan Montessori school, I know there are parents out there saying, where is it? Where is it? Can my kid go? So tell us about that. Well, a few years ago, we started this school or started the idea of the school. Uh, it's in its second year of operation. And it came about really because our yoga community was, is, continues to grow. And there are quite a few vegans having babies thinking like in this dilemma of what to do. So we created this school where empathy and compassion is just at the core of all the academics. And of course you don't have to be a vegan or a vegetarian to, to come to the school, but kids do eat a plant-based diet. They learn about empathy and compassion. They learn about permaculture. They grow their own food. Uh, They practice meditation and mindfulness. And it really is a dream come true that, that this is happening because getting kids starting young with the tools to deal with uh, the stress and the fast-paced life that life is right now is so essential. Um, Kids are, I feel, already feeling the stress of a fast-paced life. And so to be taught these tools at at the preschool age even of how to deal with that stress is huge. Um, oh, that's so, amazing. Yeah. So is this in Cincinnati? Cincinnati, yes. Wow. And if you can okay. do it in Cincinnati, well, you, you can know, do it anywhere. This might be a great is... uh, caravan of people moving to Cincinnati. <laughs> so um, yeah. we need to be winding down this, um, this half of the show. The book is World Peace Yoga, and all of the information about Anna is going to be on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net, the website WorldPeaceYogaBook.com. And you can also uh, find Anna uh, on Instagram at Anna Ferguson Peace. So, Anna, thank you so much. And everybody else, let's just hang t- Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world.
Unity Online Radio is bringing the message of unity to thousands of spiritual seekers around the world. If you enjoy our programming, we invite you to support it by visiting unityonlineradio.org and clicking on Donate Now. Help us continue to provide inspiring content to everyone. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Catherine Ponder, taken from a classic talk called The Prosperous Truth, recorded at Unity of Austin in 1991. I heard from a young lady who was just starting out as a Unity minister, and she said, I am not teaching prosperity yet in my ministry because I have not yet demonstrated it in my own life. And I don't think I should teach what I have not demonstrated. And I wrote her back and said, Honey, you've got it all backwards. You need to teach what you want to learn. You teach what you want to demonstrate because you cannot demonstrate what you do not know. There must be an inworking before there can be an outworking. To find out more about Unity Teachings, visit unity.org. Join your favorite spiritual teachers for the most extraordinary Soul Fest of the year, November 2nd through 5th at the Celebrate Your Life Conference in Phoenix, Arizona. This transformational weekend event features some of the world's leading spiritual new thought leaders, including Marianne Williamson, Neil Donald Walsh, Dr. Joe Dispenza, Caroline Mace, Greg Braden, Denise Lynn, and more. Unity listeners save an additional $75 off with coupon code UNITY. Visit CelebrateYourLifeEvents.com. That's CelebrateYourLifeEvents.com and register today. Sometimes you might feel so alone with your problems, you don't know where to turn. We invite you to call Silent Unity, the 24-7 prayer ministry, where someone is waiting to pray with you every day at any hour. Listen and relax as you hear their beautiful words affirm the highest and best outcome for you and those you love. No matter what's going on in your life, Silent Unity is always standing by. Call today, 816-969-2000. Would you like to experience more peace and joy in your life through A Course in Miracles? Let Reverend Jennifer Hadley support you in discovering the powerful life lessons available through this unique spiritual thought system that teaches the way to love and peace is through forgiveness. Join Jennifer every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for A Course in Miracles, living the love, walking the talk, to experience the healing for yourself on Unity Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan Program, where we're talking about yoga and world peace and lots of cool stuff like that. I also want to let you know, if you happen to be in the Chicago area or if you know somebody in the Chicago area, I am going to be there on November 10th with a pre-screening of A Prayer for Compassion. 
the beautiful film from Thomas Jackson that seeks to interest people who identify as religious or spiritual in becoming vegan. Now, Dr. Will Tuttle, whom we're going to be talking with in, in just a moment, is uh, one of the many wonderful people in that film. And if you are interested in seeing that, um, you can just Google National Vegetarian Museum and click on their events page. They're sponsoring this. You can find it that way or you can go to MainStreetVegan.net and click on events. And uh, if you're in Chicago, come and see the movie and uh, let us know what you think. Well, I know what you think about this gentleman. He's been on the show a few times before and he is making a huge difference all around the world. In fact, he's joining us today from Norway, where he's just finished a six-week tour around Europe. If you're not familiar with Dr. Will Tuttle, he is a visionary educator who is presented widely throughout North America and the world. He's been vegan for 38 years years and is author of the number one Amazon best-selling book, The World Peace Diet. He's a recipient of the Courage of Conscience Award and also the Empty Cages Prize. He's also the author of the recent book, Your Inner Islands, The Keys to Intuitive Living, as well as editor of Circles of Compassion, Essays Connecting Issues of Justice. And he has another book coming up that he'll be telling us about, along with lots of other things. Welcome, Dr. Will Tuttle. Thank you so much, Victoria, and thank you so much for the great work you're doing uh, with Unity Radio, and it's great to know that you've been interviewing our good friend and colleague, Anna Ferguson, and thanks to everyone for listening. Well, that's my first question to you and Anna, Uh who's still with us. So how how did you guys get together? What's the collaborative element here? Well, I remember uh, connecting with Anna and her uh, colleague Mark Stroud in uh, Cincinnati way back shortly after the World Peace Diet uh, was first released, probably uh, 10 or 11 years ago. And I discovered these two people in Cincinnati, Ohio that were absolutely delightful to talk to, that were on the same page bringing um, the World Peace Diet vision of vegan living, which explicitly includes the, the spiritual uh, consciousness d- dimension. And uh, so we started um, collaborating. We, we held a, um, a World Peace Diet facilitator training uh, up in Michigan, kind of out on this lake, and people camped in tents. And Anna was there for that to kind of start things off. And, and then we just stayed in touch. And uh, for five years, they... And you were there once, I think, uh, too, uh, Victoria. There was the um, the event that they had every year in uh, Cincinnati. That was a, a, in every October, the, uh, the the great vegan festival that we had every year. We were part of that, and uh, we've been doing so many other things. Anna's a, a tremendous uh, yoga teacher and also teacher of yoga teachers, and so we've collaborated on yoga, bring, sort of bringing the spiritual vegan message into the yoga communities that she's involved with as well. And, uh, and now I know she's doing so many things in her new book and all these things. So we're, um, we're longtime, uh, friends and colleagues. And I think, uh, th- this whole aspect that she's bringing of, of, uh, seeing yoga, not just as a sort of Indian gymnastic exercise for health, but seeing the deeper, 
uh, spiritual dimension and how it's connected to ahimsa, the foundation of vegan living is critical really for our time. Beautiful. So it's great. Yeah, it's great to be together. Uh, yeah. So Anna, just just for fun, if you met somebody who had never heard of Will Tuttle, what would you tell them about his message? What would I tell them? Yeah. I would say that, you know, when I, one of the things that I love about Will and his book, and actually we was, uh, he had given a, a manuscript to Elizabeth Farians, who's a theology professor, uh, or was, she has, she has passed, but um, at Xavier University, and um, she shared the manuscript with us, which is how, um, which was how Mark and myself connected with Will, and the the information that we read, the in, the intuitiveness and the awareness and the consciousness that Will talks about in this book. Um, I would what I would say to people about Will is that he's just really one of the most um, I'd say intuitive, aware, um, and joyful, uh, healthy people that I know. Um, and it's just like really just very, very authentic and love being around him. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> so, Will, you sent me some questions as, as our guests always do. And you've got one here in the middle that just jumps out at me and I have to ask it first. It's kind of like people say life is short, eat your dessert. What do you mean by the domination of the feminine, and how is that related to our food choices? Intriguing okay. Question. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's a that's an important question. Thanks. I think uh, many people, all of us, really, uh, growing up in our society, are aware that we're eating animal-based foods, meat, dairy products, and eggs, and we don't usually think too deeply about it. And especially very often if we're on a spiritual path, we think, well, I'm blessing the animals and uh, I'm doing my, my meditation and that's good enough. And that and most, most of the people in our communities we find are living in that way. And what I found was really helpful for me was – uh, sort of drilling a little deeper into seeing what actually is involved with animal agriculture. And there's three, actually three things involved, and it's kind of uncomfortable to talk about it, but I'll just say it very sort of nicely and briefly. One is imprisoning, right? There's, that's the core action. The animals are born into confinement. They never know a moment when they're not imprisoned and enslaved and, you know, property and that have no rights over their bodies. Uh, they're mere property. They're sold by the pound. They're used, uh, abused, and, um, and and owned as property. So that's number one. It's just the ownership and the the enslavement of the animals. Uh, and then the second one is, of course, killing them. That's the whole purpose of it, essentially, is we want to eat their flesh. So they're always killed. And animals used for dairy products and eggs are also always killed. Uh, and, and always killed at a mere fraction of their natural lifespan. In the case of chickens, it's probably one you know, 50th of their lifespan. And even the longest-lived animals like, like cows, you know, maybe uh, when they're five years old and they would live 25 years. So they're all killed as babies, infants, babies, or children. So there's this imprisonment and killing that that is inevitable. But the third aspect we don't like to think about, and that's 
um, the fact that they're they're all impregnated against their will on what the industry refers to as rape racks. So you couldn't have animal agriculture without breeding them against their will and then stealing their babies and killing their babies and then uh, impregnating them again and doing that over and over again. So it's based on breaking the bond between the, the mother and her offspring, which is the most sacred, powerful bond there is on the planet between, you know, in any relationship in any, in any group, it's the, the whole foundation of a healthy, uh, individual or healthy in human terms society is the foundation of that is the bond that we get as infants from our mother, the love and the milk and the warmth and the connection and if we don't get that psychologically uh, physically and culturally we will be very um, harmed by that so animal agriculture is based at its core on breaking that bond and in doing so uh, repressing the sacred feminine dimension not only for these poor animals but in us and essentially I think anyone who's really interested in any kind of authentic spirituality we know that we need to become more connected with the uh, spiritual uh, dimension of consciousness. And part of that is the sacred feminine dimension. I, I refer to this as Sophia in the World Peace Diet. And Sophia, as probably everybody knows, was the uh, word for wisdom. The, it was a feminine goddess of wisdom in ancient Greek language. And I think the Sophia represents a capacity in every human being to love that you know naturally this natural wisdom of of loving and nurturing and protecting life it's especially strong obviously in women and really kicks in when we give birth when a woman gives birth to a, a, a baby and the yearning to really love and nurture and protect this little being and uh, men also have this this yearning to love and nurture and protect life as well but animal agriculture as, a, as an institution and as an actual uh, relentless force in our society uh, erodes and destroys Sophia. There, there's no place for Sophia in animal agriculture. On any operation, large or small, it's always the same story. That baby is not your baby. I own you. I own your baby. I'm going to steal your baby and kill your baby and then kill you. And that's the reality that's inescapable. So it's uh, sexual abuse. Uh, in an ongoing way, and then not only causing that, but then eating that and feeding that to our children. Of course, we would rather not think about this. We'd rather sort of pretend that somehow cows just magically give milk. And I've talked to people, you, you know, very well-educated people. Not the, not long ago, I remember talking to this woman who had a PhD. She was in her 70s, and we were talking about dairy products. And she suddenly stopped and she said, wait a minute, are you telling me that cows don't just give milk. <laughs> and I remember saying, you know, cows are like us. You know, I mean, a, a woman, when she reaches a, you know, a certain age and begins to grow breasts, she doesn't just suddenly start spouting milk everywhere, right? I mean, we, we, we give milk as a mammal for our baby. But, you know, these, these industries are based on stealing uh, everything from animals. They're based on stealing their lives, stealing their purposes, stealing their time, stealing their babies, stealing their milk and their eggs and their flesh and everything. So that violence, which is so extreme and so pervasive and on a scale that is impossible to comprehend millions upon millions of times every day, we're causing this, we're voting for it, we're paying for it with our dollars, we're, then we turn around, we eat it, we feed it to our children. It's incalculable the damage that this causes to these animals and I would say it's incalculable the damage that it causes to us because 
uh, as all the spiritual traditions have emphasized, whatever we sow, we will reap. Whatever we put out will come back. The, the boomerang effect essentially is inescapable. And we understand that uh, logically, and yet we live in a society where we're all uh, compelled from the time we're little infants to participate in mealtime rituals where we just ignore this. We learn to ignore that basic fundamental spiritual principle that is the core of every religion. And we say, well, we can dominate and exploit and oppress and abuse millions of animals and somehow expect that we will have a world of peace and harmony and abundance and love and caring. And it will never happen if we, whatever we sow, we reap. And these animals, their fate is in our hands. And these female animals who are giving birth to babies yearn every much uh, bit as much as we do to love and protect and nurse and nurture their babies. And we don't allow that. And we break down their families and we find sociologists saying that one of the worst problems we have today is the breakdown of family structures and the, uh, the, the various types of psychological illness, the anomie and sense of uh, despair that many people feel. Uh, so I think, you know, we have the answer. It's very clear. Each one of us can make an effort to understand what's really happening in our world. It doesn't help us to pretend to not understand and to ignore the realities that we are causing with our actions, that we're eating, that we're feeding to our children and that we're supporting. And when we realize that it's absolutely unnecessary, there are absolutely no nutrients that we need to be healthy that are in any animal-based foods, that we can thrive and celebrate our lives on this beautiful and abundant planet without causing any suffering to animals, that we can allow them to live their lives as they did for millions of years in, in the habitats that they're designed to thrive in. And we can feed everyone on this earth actually on a fraction of the land with much less water, much less petroleum and a lot more health and happiness if we allow the animals to be free and if we stop the sexual abuse. And I think really what we're seeing, I think what your program, Victoria, is part of, and I think what the whole unity movement actually is part of, is what I refer to in the World Peace Diet as a resurrection of the sacred feminine dimension of consciousness. It's, a, it's really the feminine energy of kindness and caring and concern that is, I think, at the core of the message of Charles and Myrtle Fillmore as it was articulated in the early part of the last century. And it's no accident that they made uh, you know, a, a big emphasis on plant-based eating, uh, not harming animals. The, the first Bible they created was made out of a sort of a primitive Naga hide material that was not animal skin because they didn't want to cause, as Charles said, any suffering to their little brothers, the animals. And they were very sensitive, I think, to uh, the, the, this dimension that uh, there is a sacred dimension to life and the feminine dimension is really the core of that in many ways, this capacity to be receptive and the capacity to nurture and protect uh, in the Buddhist tradition, this is referred to as the bodhisattva uh, energy, the energy of compassion and the energy of caring and to, uh, to do the best we can to live our lives as a blessing to others. And all religions, uh, especially unity, but all religions see that our happiness is really linked to our, not only our spiritual awakening, but to living that awakening. And how do we live a, a spiritual awakening? It's in our relationships with others and especially with those 
uh, who are at our mercy. And if we don't uh, extend well, it to them, then, then then we're not extending it. So that's that's basically the power of the sacred feminine. Thanks. That that is that's powerful. Wow. So as you look out on the world right now today, the the way things are, the United States in particular that you'll be returning to soon, and and the world as a whole. Sometimes it really seems like ooh, we, we are evolving. There is this upward progression of the universe going on. I can just see it everywhere I look. And I have to tell you, lately, I just haven't been seeing that so much. So when you look out there, what do you see? And, and you can talk to us in a global perspective, too, because I know you've been around China, India, all over the place lately so tell us how it's going. <laughs> Thank you, Victoria. You know, that's a really perceptive question, I, I think. And I, I know exactly what you're saying because I've always, I've actually felt the same way that we, we can see this mom, positive momentum building and we've been able to see that and feel that, I think, especially over the last you know, seven or eight years. And then it seems like in the last one or two or three years, that things are just getting really dicey in, in a certain sense, that there's this, this kind of um, sense of uh, consciousness becoming more and more polarized and efforts seem to be being made to just divide and conquer and oppress uh, each other in, in ecosystems and animals uh, on many different levels. And we maybe be wondering, you know, what's happening here. And I think uh, essentially as we traveled like you say, many times to all these different places, Africa, Asia, and Europe, and so forth, and all over the United States, um, I still feel uh, essentially a, a basic sense of positive, confident hopefulness, I guess. I don't really try not to be, in a sense, hopeful in the sense that I expect something, but more there's just a sense that uh, there is this, in spite of, I would say, really, in spite of the increasing uh, negativity that we see in the media, and in spite of, in many ways, a lot of the increasing uh, just uh, uh, just ferment, really social ferment, and and and, and violence very often mil that's military and so forth. There is just this this phenomenal um, loving, understanding kind of energy everywhere we go. I mean, people are. Uh, somehow, I think, evolving in spite of all this, or maybe uh, it's even s speeding it up. And, and if whatever, if there are any forces that are trying to you know, stop it, they're working even harder, but they're not going to win. <laughs> so I think, I think ultimately, um, love is triumphant. And, and, and the way I deal with it, essentially, is just simply this realization that I think we all have, which is that our lives on this earth are relatively temporary. We can eat a whole lot of sprouts, and maybe we get 10 or 11 decades, but we still just get a few decades, you know? And so each day is, go, you know, is, uh, is a gift, a precious gift. And that's all we really have is this day. So I make it a practice as best I can to every morning I, when I wake up to remind myself and just cultivate this feeling, which is always present of gratitude that I have another day to be part of the solution and, and just show me what to do to be part of the solution, to be become more aware and to contribute whatever I have to contribute, however it turns out. I don't know how it's going to turn out. You know, we don't know how it will turn out, but we do know that each one, you know, each one of us as individuals has another gift of another day to do the best we can and to work together. 
and do just do our best. That's it. Because I think what we are is far greater than just this one little tiny experience that we're having here. And and to kind of remember that there's a, a bigger thing going on and to do the best we can for the gift that we're given each day. Mm. So, Will, you, you are a former Zen Buddhist monk and your book that's coming is Buddhism and Veganism. Essays Connecting Spiritual Awakening and Animal Liberation. Give us a quick preview. Right. Well, a lot of people, when they say um, that they're uh, interested in Buddhism or they meet people who are Buddhist, or Bo- especially Buddhist monks, they think these people must be vegans. And then they're very often, uh, because it's all about compassion and meditation and peace and so forth, and so very often people are very disturbed when they see, meet these Buddhist monks who are eating meat. Uh, and they say, what's going on here? So um, I felt that it was would be great to just sort of write a book. And Actually, I'm not the writer, I'm the editor, so I, I chose a, like tw- 20 other uh, Buddhist vegans, basically from different traditions, both you know, Zen Mahayana traditions and Theravadan traditions and Tibetan Buddhist traditions to give their perspective on Buddhism as a as a teaching and on veganism as a teaching and how they support each other and in what ways uh, they support each other and how veganism can contribute to Buddhism, how Buddhism can contribute to veganism and and why it is that uh, many Buddhists are not vegan. It's to just help us understand these because I think in many ways, you know, Christianity also, of course, people wonder why more Christians aren't vegans. But I think Buddhism as a, as a, as a teaching is very explicit in including all living beings within the sphere of our compassion. So you would think that every it would be sort of a basic baseline that we would be all be vegans. And then to just kind of explore the resistance and, and the goals that we have to transform uh, Buddhism, but also, I think, to deepen veganism through the mindfulness practices that Buddhism offers, because I think our, our vegan movement also can really benefit by uh, more uh, and deeper spiritual awareness. So that's what the book is about. Beautiful. And when is it coming out? Well, I it's at the Book Designer right now, and we've been on this tour for six weeks, but it's, we're it's be out this year. I mean, it just depends on how long it takes them to get things together. You know how that is. Sometimes it, uh-huh. <laughs> things take a little while, but it's definitely finished and should be out before too long. Oh, that's that's wonderful. So, Will, just in our last few minutes, because you yes. have been traveling to so many places, one of the things we hear is, well, for a while, meat consumption was going down in the U.S., and now it's going up a little bit, but oh my goodness, in India and China, it's going up so much. It's just like, Oh gosh, I was trying to be happy. <laughs> so what do you see on the <laughs> right. ground in India, China, Africa, elsewhere? Actually, um, what I see on the ground with India and, and China especially uh, is a lot to be grateful for. I mean, China is really making huge strides and the government has mandated that everyone in the country as a whole reduce meat consumption by 50%. I mean, we haven't done that in Norway country has done that and they're um they're you know, there's a tremendous uh the, the buddhists i mean the, the buddhists are just promoting veganism everywhere and uh so there's a very strong movement of, of veganism in china it's really the founding founding place of veganism and then in india uh in, you know it, it's difficult in india because of the, the dairy is so deep but 
but there is a strong and growing movement in India also. And the, the, the problem, of course, always is that as incomes go up, people think that they want to eat, live more the way the wealthy people live, and that means they want to eat more meat. So there's that basic uh, dilemma, and that's also true in Africa as well. And so we're working in South America and Asia, I mean, everywhere. Uh, but the good news is, I think, that as more Americans and Germans and British and other sort of wealthy industrialized people are moving to, uh, toward veganism, it's setting this example that actually it's much better to be a vegan, you know, and, and the, the traditional foods of these countries are basically plant-based. So uh, we were just thrilled in all these countries we visited just to find the vibrant young people who are creating grassroots movements in these countries that are growing very quickly and to see how many more vegan restaurants are springing up in these countries and vegan meetup groups and sanctuaries and festivals and, and so forth. And we just try to support them as best we can. And like you say, there are powerful forces pushing for more meat the pharmaceutical industry really prefers that and the military industry i think banks very often prefer, prefer that but people realize i think more and more that it's not in their best interest actually and i think as we in the more wealthy countries reduce our meat we send a powerful message as we go vegan that this is something uh, for them to do also yeah. and the more we can do that i think the better yeah. Wonderful. And you send such a powerful message around the world wherever you go. If you haven't read The World Peace Diet, it's a must. It's I don't know if you know, Will, it's one of the required books for anyone coming into Main Street Vegan Academy. They can't walk through the door unless they have read your book. And we're going to be looking for Buddhism and veganism. And of course, available now, Anna Ferguson's beautiful book, World Peace Yoga. Everybody, thank you for listening. Thanks to Unity Online Radio. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.